Welcome back to the podcast. Hopefully another not shitty episode. I'm not gonna say great episode. There's <laughs> last, always last one was really good. It was good, but there's just always something. So I actually that, learned quite a bit from that, believe it or not. I was listening back to it and it's got a lot of scratching. So somebody was fucking with their mic or I don't know. Either way, Blue Tail Bow Hunters here. Uh Devin. Tipo. El Lindo. El Lindo. I think. El Lindo, pretty boy in Spanish, something we learned. So today, um, today is going to be our first time doing this. This is going to be um, an episode where our guest is actually um, via remote, not in studio with us. But we do have a guest. This one's going to be back. Um, we've been staying away from the hunting thing here recently. We just had uh recently there's just been a lot of police stuff that we've been talking about and then we had tyler in here talking about you know his life and um, addiction and all that but we're we're going back towards the hunting one and this one um we have a special guest somebody that's um i you can tell just just lives for the outdoors um from talking to him being around him seeing his uh social media stuff so we will introduce him real quick. We'll do our fallen officer. So, Brian Rogers, what's up, brother? What's going on, buddy? How you guys doing? Hang it in there. So, um, like I said, this is remote. So, apologize if there's any issues. This is our first time doing this, so this might be a complete fail. But we're gonna roll with it anyways. <laughs> Knowing our our track record, it maybe we all might be fucked. Yeah, up. we don't know what the hell we're doing, but <laughs> we we scrape our way through it. So. Um, so Brian, whenever we start these, we always, um, show, uh, respect to a fallen officer. So we shout one out and then we'll, we'll get into Absolutely. our thing. So anybody want to go first? So police officer, Eric Talley of the Boulder police department, Colorado into watch March 22nd, 2021. Uh, this was the incident at the grocery store in Boulder, Colorado recently, um, officer Tally was shot and killed about 2.30 p.m. while responding to the active shooter incident at the King Super Grocery Store. Um, officer Tally was the first officer to arrive on scene and was shot while he engaged the uh, gunman. Uh, the subject was taken into custody a short time later after being wounded. Officer Tally served with the Boulder Police Department in 11 years. He was survived by his wife, seven children and his parents he's 51 years old and yeah appreciate your service yep, thank you I'm hey welcome do. back to the podcast by the way clint i was here for it's the last on. one well you showed up a little late but we're making fun of I mean, we can start putting him on this one really thing he can just call in and do shit yeah, yeah start perfect. calling in i think i can have multiple guests on here so that could work Fantastic. Let's do it. Right, i got lieutenant eugene lasco he worked for the indiana department of corrections i feel like we did this and to watch us we did this one we might have to go ahead. Just oh, yeah. roll it up. February 21. Yeah. Uh, Last sounds familiar. End of watch Sunday, February 21st of this year. Uh, Lieutenant Lasco was stabbed to death by an inmate at the Indiana State Police, or I'm sorry, Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, Indiana. Um, the prisoner was being escorted through a common area when he began to assault another corrections officer when Lieutenant Lasco came to the officer's assistance. The inmate stabbed him as well before being subdued by other officers. Lieutenant Lasco and the other wounded officer were transported to a nearby hospital in Michigan City. 
Lieutenant Lasko succumbed to his wounds at the hospital. Uh, uh, something on the computer. The inmate who was serving a sentence for three murders in Marion County was charged with murder. Was charged with Lieutenant Lasko's murder and other offenses. Lieutenant Lasko was a U.S. Navy veteran and had served with the Indiana Department of Corrections for 11 and a half years. He survived by his wife, children, and grand grandchildren. He was 57 years old. Rest peace. Rest yeah, peace. I think I need to get a list of officers because I, I mean, no fault to you. You know, you don't show up half the time, so you wouldn't know anyways. But <laughs> <laughs> I think we did do him, but uh, I do need to keep track. There's so. been a lot of correctional officers lately on there from stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I, like I don't remember specifically the last code and then this getting stabbed, but whatever. It is what it is. Yeah, um, twice. Doesn't hurt. Yeah, so my end of watch is going to be Barry Edwin Henderson. He was a Polk County Sheriff's Office um, officer. He, he was a sergeant, sorry. Um, Sergeant Barry Henderson died from complications uh, from COVID-19 during a confirmed exposure while attending a training class um, for public safety com or at a public safety complex. Uh, he had served with the Polk County Sheriff's Office for 23 years and is survived by his wife and three children. Um, so he was 50 years old, had done 23 years, and died to, died to COVID. So um, rest in peace. Another one of those where we... Don't even or don't always just have to deal with dirt bags. Maybe not even dirt bags. I'm sorry for saying that, but <laughs> potential criminals and stuff, and, and um, getting shot and stabbed and all that. But then we were on the front lines of the, the COVID stuff too. So yeah, it is what it is. Um, so rest in peace to him. Rest in peace mm -hmm. to you too. So let's get into it. Brian, what's up, brother? <clears throat> what's going on, guys? Still there? There he is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, can you hear me? Um, Yep, yep, you're good. There, I, I'm delay. sure there's just a delay just because of this, but again, we've not done this yet, so we're just going to have to roll through that. So Take it slow. Uh, Brian, tell tell the people out there, the millions of people listening, <clears throat> who Brian is. Well, uh, I'll, I'll, it's kind of hard to summarize your life uh, uh, quickly, but I'll just hit the bullet points that make me sound cool. Uh, I, I would... I... Uh, Grew up hunting and fishing from a very young age. So uh, from the time I was like six, five or six, I was uh, I was being the rabbit dog for my uh, uncles and cousins. Uh, and, uh, you know, going out on, I was going in there and, and busting rabbits out so they could shoot them and, uh, you know, squirrels going and grabbing squirrels and stuff like that. And uh, ultimately I was just, uh, I was ate up with it from a very young age. Uh and I don't know if that's because, um, you know, all of my older uncles and, and cousins did it. And so it was the cool thing to do. And so I, and you know, my parents wouldn't let me go until I, you know, and actually go until I was like six or seven. So I, uh, you know, I was chomping at the bit to get out there and, uh, uh, you know, just be a part of it. And, uh, uh I, I cut my teeth, uh, you know, mostly, if not all of my hunting was done on public, uh, from a very young age. And, uh, uh, minus my, my deer hunting experience, uh, my first couple of years deer hunting when I was like, uh, 11 or 12, uh, was private ground with shotguns. Uh, it was, you know, small 40 acre piece that we, uh, my uncle got permission to from a guy at work. And, uh, you know, we had these big giant wooden ladder stands that we uh 
we uh, drug out there and chained to the trees. And that was just where we sat, uh, you know, for a couple years in a row. And uh, I think what really, uh, I mean, obviously I just love the woods anyway. I love squirrel hunting and rabbit hunting and all that stuff, but um, deer hunting was so hard to me. Uh, because I think partly because of the way that we did it was just sitting in those same tree stands going the same route. So it took a couple of years of sitting there. and I, w- I would see deer at a distance, but I would never actually have one uh, come close enough to shoot. So I still remember uh, sitting there almost feeling like I was defeated or done with deer hunting. I was like 13 and all of a sudden I look up and uh, a four pointer was coming over the creek and he comes to 15 yards. And uh, I, uh, I, 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 you know, I was in disbelief that it was, that it was actually even really happened. Cause like I said, it'd been a couple years and I'd never had one close enough to shoot. And uh, <laughs> here he comes, he's at 15 yards broadside and I shoot and I miss with my shotgun and I cut, oh, yeah. you know, and I pump, I pump that eight, I pump the eight seventy, and then I beat down and I shoot and I miss again. And, uh, I'm in disbelief at this point. And, uh, he runs to the edge of the woodlot about 40 yards away and I just point and click and he drops. Uh, and I had caught him an inch higher, uh, cause there really wasn't a lot of aiming on that third shot. It was kind of a, it was kind of a point and uh, point at him and click type th- deal, you know? Praise and, uh, so he, yeah, he, he dropped luckily. And there, you know, and I hit him in the spine on the neck and I mean, you know, another inch, another inch higher and, uh, and I'd have missed him. So anyway, well, we've learned uh, the headshots are good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely one way to make sure they don't get up again. Yeah. I shot a deer in the head this year. So, oh yeah, shot a doe right in the back of the head. It was great (laughs) with my bow. So, but so so you started at a young age. Um, How old are you now? I'm actually I'm 35. I'm about to be 36. So, Uh, and you and Clint are old as shit. Yeah, yeah. Every time I mean you've been in the woods for the better part of 30 years. Yes, and. the public woods too. So, uh, and, and when I was younger, I didn't even realize, I mean, I realized that there were differences, uh, obviously, but, uh, when I was a kid, I always thought that hunting public was the second best option, you know, and I always looked at, right. the, you know, the rich kids with, you know, the hundreds of acres to go hunt and stuff like that as, you know, that's, that's what I want, man. I can't wait till I get older and I can buy, you know, 3000 acres of, Pike County farm ground. You know what I'm saying? Uh, right. And dream of big there, 3,000 acres. Well, I, I grew up hunting 16,000 <laughs> acres of public ground. So to me, I was like, man, I want a giant piece of private. Valid. But, Valid point. No, I didn't. I did, I did not choose the doctor or lawyer route. So uh, it didn't end up happening for me, but. I, uh, Amen to that. I always, like I said, I always, I always looked at it as being like, oh man, you know, that's 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 where I want to go. So when I would get permission farms and stuff like that, I would always, I would hunt public, but I would look at it like the good times of the year. I'm going to go hunt these private, you know, quote unquote, honey holes. Uh, sure. And and looking back, 
it uh, a lot of lessons it still taught me. But uh, when when I really look back at it, the the farms that I had permission on, there was a reason. Usually, other people could get permission, and when you got smaller parcels and you got more pressure on those smaller parcels, uh, you know you're almost shooting yourself in the foot because it's a lot harder to hunt. 200 acres with four guys hunting it than it is to hunt 16,000 acres with, you know, uh, you know, a couple hundred guys hunting it that day, if that makes any sense. So, so, uh, a turning point for me, uh, was really when I started to, uh, well, number one, get mobile, but, uh, number two, just accept, like start to love the public land thing and start accepting it as the challenge and enjoy that challenge and face it as, all right, I'm going to set my mind to do this and only this and not, uh, and not, you know, during the good times still hunt it and not, not go somewhere else. And, uh, I, that, that in and of itself will, uh, you know, when you focus all your energy into one thing, as opposed to spreading it out, I think that's a huge thing. I think that, yeah, you- and I feel like, uh, sorry to cut you off, but I feel like I'm, I'm super common and I can, I can relate to what you're saying because, um, I mean, I just started getting, in, getting into hunting, but <clears throat> my first year, um, it was, it was the same as you starting out where it's the same tree stand, um, that the farmers had up for God knows how many years. And I would, I would see a few deer, but they would never be close to me. And I was like, man, I always got to get over there. So then that turned into, to learning the mobile game. And then that turned into, um, public, which I just recently took up last year. And it was more, it's now become more of trying to learn, just learn the woods. And it is just sitting there waiting for a deer to come and, you know, learning how deer live and, and really all wildlife. And now I'm trying to get into different species of even like the trees and shit like that. So I can, I can really learn how, um, the animals live. And it's, so it's more of a, an entire thing than it is just hunting. I can even, uh, I can even relate like, uh, lessons learned on like my very first hunt. I remember, uh, me and my uncle pull up to this cornfield, uh, like the, the edge of the cornfield and we walk all the way to the cornfield to this, this small woodlot and there's deer snorting and, and running away from right under our tree stand as we're going in in the dark. And you know, I was young and I didn't really, you know, I didn't know everything at the time, but I was thinking like, man, do we really want to be busting these deer out of where we're going to hunt? You know what I'm saying? And so looking back, looking back on how many times I repeatedly still took that route and didn't learn anything from it. Uh, you know, that, that's one thing that always like you, you you know, it's a progression when you're hunting and it's a, it's a learning experience, but, um, like I would have killed, I guarantee I would have killed more deer and probably some big bucks. I saw big bucks in there, but if I would have just come at it from a different route and not busted the deer out of there going in. Uh, right. That's, that's all you ever knew. So it took, took learning that. Yeah. And my uncle, he had always only hunted, you know, one way he went in with his bucket full of stuff with his headlamp blaring and uh, his coffee, his big coffee mug and climbed a, you know, a big wooden ladder stand and, uh, waited all day for something to come by and shot it. You know what I mean? So you can't fault <laughs> yeah. him either. Cause we, we have way more resources nowadays, um, that show us, you know, that shorten the learning curve, um, you know, than they did back then, you know, back then 
you know, it was like, Hey, go find a stump, sit on that sucker and wait all day. So it's uh it's definitely a different game now. Cause we've got 50 podcasts and, you know, YouTube videos showing us. Oh, different. Yeah. So yeah, we got, we got all, everything but, out there, uh, which. Good. No, go ahead. Um, no, I was just going to say uh, real quick. I want to back up real quick. I want to back. I know this is a shit show with the, with the lag, but real quick, I want to back up to even just how, um, like you and I met was your cousin, Brian Johnson, who we've had on this podcast as a guest, um, old BJ, he shot a deer, um, on public and needed help tracking it the next day. And that's whenever you met. And I just remember like, as soon as I met you, you start talking about hunting and it was like this dude like lives for this shit. And so even right then I was like, I need to, I need to talk to this guy a lot so I can learn. And, and I kind of followed you around in the woods just that day and kind of, it's kind of creepy now, but I watched you and, and just how you, you like scoured the land and you were talking a little bit and I was trying to pick that stuff up, but obviously you can't just learn from going out one time, but I was, I definitely gravitated to, this is a guy that, that I could learn a lot from. Well, by the way, that's Pike County Trophy No Hunters president, Brian Johnson, just so we get that out of the way. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. So so real quick on that, I wanted to ask you real or earlier, is that the same? I mean, obviously you guys are cousins. So he said that his family owns that land in Pike County. Is that the same like side of the family? Yeah. So, so his grandpa is my dad's oldest brother. My dad has 10 brothers and sisters. Um, spanning about 20, 25 years between them. And, uh, uh, his grandpa is about, uh, in his early eighties and my dad's in his mid sixties. So, uh, there's, there's a bit of a gap there. And, uh, uh, so not all of them are super close, but me and Brian and me and Brian Johnson weren't really that close growing up, but then, uh, we hooked up to go hunt on his grandpa's farm. And, uh, then I started taking him out onto public and, uh, and so it's, it's been kind of cool, the progression too, of, uh, watching him go mobile hunting, you know, with, you know, you know, be, me showing him that aspect of it. And then, you know, also us getting to hang out and hunt, uh, on some private ground together too. So, uh, that's been kind of cool to actually connect with him over the, over the past five or six years. And, uh, yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah. So, and, uh, and then, then back to what I was saying about the, you were talking about how we just have more resources now with podcasts and YouTube. I mean, it's crazy the amount that I've learned just from listening to podcasts over the last three years. It went from sitting in one tree stand, um, like I was talking about earlier, the farmer had to just the following year, I had a hanging bank set up and I was getting places that I never even thought about. And that ended up being the difference um, between me, me actually killing something. Um, so that was pretty cool. But then you also have YouTube and, yeah. uh, and hunting shows, yeah. which is something that you do yourself. <clears throat> yeah. And, um, just, uh, I'll come right back to that. But when you were talking about when we went out with Brian Johnson, uh, to look for that deer, uh, yep. uh, and you were saying like, I was looking around, I'm not trying to sound like I'm a know-it-all and I've been wrong plenty of times, but <laughs> I have been through, that situation so many times that I knew we were not going to find that deer, but I didn't want to be the negative, uh, you know, guy that's keeping it down. Cause every once in a while you still find that deer, but oh, for sure. usually, usually, you know, if you, you know, like that's, that's the thing is if you've been through it enough and he did everything right, he backed out, he didn't push it. Um, you know, 
But if you just you don't hit them right, you don't hit them right. And usually you can tell after scouring that land, you know, uh, you know, and oh, the blood trail. Yeah. So uh, that that was one thing is uh, I kind of I kind of knew a little bit quicker, but it's harder when you're the shooter and you shoot a big buck to to admit defeat, you know. Uh, yeah, I kind of had so, a similar feeling. That's why anyways, I kind of just followed uh, you around. Going back to the most- watching you. Sorry, watching you look at everything. I was I was looking. At- yeah, after about an hour, I was looking at deer sign. <laughs> I was like looking you for like you know, oh, this would be cool to hunt, you know, because because uh, when a, when a blood trail gets real gets real sparse like that, you know, and uh, you've already scoured every thick area in the in the spot, I mean, usually that gives you a pretty good idea what happened. He even went back in there with a the dog. He exhausted every effort like he should, but still, you know, uh, I've been on so many blood trails that just you know, ended, ended, uh, without a deer that, uh, I, we both, me and you both had a feeling about it, but, uh, anyway, about the mobile, uh, the mobile hunting aspect, like you said, not only, not only do, uh, do you gain, like, you know, you're not sitting in the same spot all the time, but one of the biggest things I think for mobile hunting, uh, you know, like the, the, uh, one of the biggest benefits is, you're not uh married to a spot as far as like even if even if i have if i have private ground and i know i have tried and true spots and i have them set up in all these different spots for all these different wins i've had situations where i go in somewhere and i set up and it wasn't right for the wind when i got in there to that spot or the deer movement was just off of that spot and i got down and moved and i had to make a move in the moment like, you know, during a hunt, get down and remove and it paid off. Um, 2019, I had that happen and I had 180 inch deer on public at 20 yards because of that. So, and that deer would have never been by me had I not made a 15 or no, that was actually about a 50 yard move up the hill. So, uh, mobile hunting, not only gets you to where you're hunting, you know, different areas every day or every time, but also you you got to stay ready to move ahead of the deer. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it's awesome to be able to, to see deer and, and cause it, growing up, it was like, there's deer over there and they might walk over here. Like, so you're praying the whole time. Whereas this way you're putting it more into your hands and it's like, they're over there. I, I'm going to go over there. Like, why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the other thing too, is like, uh, when you, the, the other thing people don't realize is when, Cause I used to put up different presets, you know, and uh, also mobile hunt with my climber and stuff like that. And I would split it up. But I also find that when you spend all summer hanging presets, you almost feel obligated to hunt them because you spent so much time, work and energy in putting them up that right. like you, you feel this obligation to go and utilize that work that you did. So now you're not thinking uh freshest sign, or, you know, what, you know, wh- what's the best possible spot for me to be in? It's which one of these tree stands that I preset is going to be the best one to go sit today. You see what I'm saying? Right. And so in a weird way, it closes your mind up to your options. Yeah. You're kind of cutting out a little bit, which fucking sucks, but it is what it is. Um, that's what we have with this, but yeah, I get what you're saying. Cause, um, you know, it, 
I feel like even this year, a mistake that I made was I put a bunch of time into um, scouting a certain area before season on public. And then I kind of became um, kind of affixated with that spot. Even, I mean, I was seeing sign during the season, but I wasn't seeing the deer. And at a time where I probably should have just left that place and, and moved on, I wanted to stay there and I kept staying there and uh, never did even pan out. But that's something I did learn from this year. For this past year yeah and I, I don't know how much you guys want to focus on just deer and the public land thing or if you guys want to talk about everything but like uh one of the things and i've mentioned it uh you know uh on other podcasts too is uh your ground scent uh people don't you know people always want to worry about your wind on stand but i always feel like if you if you kind of you know what your, your wind is doing that day and even though it can switch and you got to worry about thermals that's much easier to figure out than the route to your tree stand that is is going to play the wind in its favor and make sure that you're not leaving ground scent that's going to mess you up because all too often big deer will come in and they know something's not quite right. And I don't necessarily always believe it's because they're catching uh, your wind from the stand, but I believe that it's because they're catching the wind from the way that you walked in. Um, and especially when they cross the path where you walk in, but I think a lot of times you even leave ground scent and it can carry over, you know, hours later and they can still smell that you've been there. And I don't think people give that enough credit, especially on public, because I've seen it too many times where big deer come in and get boogery and, uh, you, you're like, man, I don't know why, you know, what, what the hell just happened? Like that deer was upwind or, you know, but, uh, you really, really have to, um, take into account your ground scent. Uh, and I, if I was, I agree with that. Yeah. If I was going to pound one thing in people's head, it's entry route. Um, sure. Exit exits matter. Uh, you know, if you're, if you can guarantee that nobody else is going to be in there after you, which on public, you can't. Especially when you're dragging a deer on the exit. Yeah. Your, your entry route has to be bulletproof, man. Uh, you, you have to, uh, you have to make sure that it's not where they're going to walk and it's not going to be blowing from where you walk to where that they're going to, they're going to end up being. So, um, I use a lot so of, let me ask you bridges this to my advantage. Uh, for, sorry, I cut you off. This fucking lag sucks. But so a guy like me, like I, I understand that that's a thing that I have to take into consideration, but I'm also green enough mm-hmm. to where I don't like, I don't know where the fuck the deer are coming from. So it's like, I got to be in the woods to figure out where the deer are even at and where they're coming from. But then I feel like at the same time, I'm walking on all the wrong places and just, I'm just fucking myself before I even get, get set. So at like, at what point in your, your career did, did that stuff start to click? Okay. So also I always want to, I always want to put an asterisk on here that there's no such thing as always or never in deer hunting. Um, you know, you, you could have a giant walk right over where you walk and him not give, you know, two shits and who knows why, maybe he's hot, you know, maybe he's just all redded up and hot for a doe and doesn't care. You know what I mean? There's, there's a lot of different factors. Uh, you know, I just, uh, I've seen a lot, you know, a lot of the same behavior over the years and have made these, you know, you know, kind of come to these different conclusions, but that doesn't mean there's, it's always going to play that way. Um, and also there are times where you just have to say, screw it, go in and hang and, you know, 
see what happens, see what's going on. And like you're going to have a lot of screw time. ups. You're going to have a lot of. <laughs> well, it definitely takes an understanding of where where the deer are hanging out, and you know that comes from scouting and hunting. Like there's no uh, there's no substitute for experience and you know in anything, and you got to put in the work. And uh, I think that's a large part of a lot of people's problem. I'm not saying you're not willing to put in the work, but a lot of people want a magic bullet, right? Uh, what is the, what is the one key that is going to, that is going to make me a better deer hunter? Well, there's no one key that's going to make you a better deer hunter. It's literally hunting and, uh, watching, experiencing, understanding your movement better and, uh, and figuring it out in the area that you hunt. One of my biggest downfalls was, uh, when I, when I started hunting, I would watch all the guys on TV and try to mimic what they were doing on the places I was hunting but it's not apples to apples. You know what I'm saying? They, they're hunting for sure. low pressure deer that are coming out to food plots in the daytime. Uh, they, you know, they don't have to worry about if somebody was in there the day before. Um, ha- they don't have to worry about if that deer has been shot at near as much. So, uh, sorry, my lab's going crazy in his, in his pen here. Um, but so, uh, I think that's, that's one of the biggest things is to understand that, uh, the, the things that you see from other hunters, you have to go out and see what is actually happening in your area and take it on a case by case basis. Just like I run probably 25 to 30 cams on, you know, uh, on three or four different public parcels every year. And, uh, it's really eye opening to see number one, how deer move, but importantly, how big deer, uh, utilize an area. But then even more importantly, there's a lot less pressure than a lot of people think on, on, in a lot of public areas. Uh, in 2019, I only got one person, uh, one other hunter on 30 different cameras on public. Uh, you know, last year I got a, a couple of guys, but most of them were on the same camera. Um, so I think, first of all, a lot of people will uh, kind of zone themselves out by thinking like there's more pressure than what there is or, you know, uh, everything has to be perfect as far as like um, their own scent control on themselves and things like that. Those things will psych you out and then you'll end up going in there thinking like, well, shit, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to sit over here. This looks good. Screw it. Let's see what happens. Right. So. Uh, not Stop to, talking not, about me like that. <laughs> not to drill on, but like, uh, I think when it finally started to click was just, uh, you know, I always, I always kind of, before this whole betting craze, as far as like uh, Dan Infall and, and uh, the hunting public, uh, who actually kind of got a lot of their ideals from Dan Infall, but they focus on finding exact buck betting right? I had always figured out from an early age that it wasn't like the guys on TV where I could sit on the field edge and kill big deer. So I started to backtrack and figure out where those deer were coming from because I knew they weren't moving in daylight hours. And I, I understood the idea of bedding, but not specific beds. What I, my thought, you know, when I was younger was find thick, you know, thick cover and hang outside of that on the downwind side and hope to catch them coming out of that. 
Um, I didn't. So that's no, I didn't that's what I started doing this year. Right. Just sitting on the downside of bedding with the I wind. Mean, and You had a couple good encounters and you shot a deer with two arrows and never found it. But I mean, there was numerous shooters in there that I never would have got there if I hadn't have been mobile and playing the wind on the right. side of those beddings, which changed yep. everything. I, and I don't mean to keep droning on, guys, so if you guys have something to say, I, I just uh, – I, it always feels weirder if there's dead air, so. No, yeah, you're good. And there's, there's going to be with this lag. Um, I mean, this is definitely something that um, obviously we can have you on more. So once we get closer to deer season, like, fuck yeah, I want to hear all this shit. <clears throat> but right now, I mean, we're in kind of that – you know, we're after season. We're coming up on turkey season. Um, so we can talk about turkeys here in a little bit because I know you have a, a huge love for turkey hunting, but real quick, before we get to turkeys, I want to, I want to ask you, what is your game plan during this time of year to basically a start, start or starting from the end of one season, whitetail season to the next, what are you doing as far as scouting and getting boots on the ground and stuff like that to one target, target deer, and then figure out like, cause their patterns change. We all know that. Like what, what do you do? Because this last season, um, I believe you tagged out. Is that correct? Pretty early. Yeah. I've, 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 I've bucked out two years in a row on public. So, uh, I've had two really good years in a row, but, um, what's crazy is, is, um, I've always, uh, I'll answer that whole question, but I've always, uh, since I've been younger and started really, uh, mobile hunting with, I had a climb, a lone wolf climber at like 18. I remember spending like four or 500 bucks. And that was a ridiculous amount of money for me to spend on, uh, something hunting related at the time it still is. But, uh, you know, especially for an 18 year old, I, I think I worked at red lobster or something like that. And, uh, so, uh, you know, for me to drop that kind of coin on something hunting, I just knew I had used the, the crazy death trap climbers, the steel climbers that, uh, you know, slid, I remember climbing in the icy conditions and they slid, slid down. I, I don't know how I lived through using those, but anyway, uh, ever since I, uh, started, you, you know, started going mobile and stuff like that, um, uh, things really changed but where was i going with that anyway i'll answer your question i lost my train of thought um the uh what i'm doing right now is yeah you're starting to finish what's that i said you're starting to finish you know what you're doing as far as this time of year leading up to you know we got several months coming up um what are you doing as far as scouting and stuff like that well uh normally i would uh I would be out shed hunting and stuff like that. But, uh, I, I got a new job back in, uh, uh, November and it's been kicking my ass as far as any kind of, uh, free time. So I have been basically doing gear prep. Um, and that's something that I do like every waking free second that I have of the day. I'm kind of weird like that where I am constantly screwing with my mobile setup. Like, I will, I, I'm kind of a weirdo in the sense that I will go in to my, my, uh, my man cave where I have my gear and just sometimes just sit there and stare at my tree stand, thinking of ways to improve something stupid or small. And like, then I'll, you know, and then sometimes I'll sit there and I'll be thinking about it, thinking about it. The thing will hit me at work, something I have to buy or something I have to mod. And then I have to go home that night and I have to, I have to do it. 
and then I'll ultimately go out, test it and, and see, you know, did it make it more quiet? Did it make it more light? Did it make it, uh, did, did it make my whole system flow, you know, smoother, more synergy with everything? You know what I'm saying? So that's really what, what will, uh, catapult you to is not fighting your gear. Um, so, so in the off season, I focus a lot on that. And, uh, uh, another big thing is for me anyway, is I run trail cams, but I don't run them until June or July. A lot of guys will run them year round. Uh, but for me, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense because uh, other, you know, like other than finding out if certain deer made it through, but for me, what I found through running my trail cams is I don't get super excited about seeing giant deer in velvet in the summer or even in September um, because they totally change their patterns. And, uh, you know, when October rolls around, you, you tend to not see a lot of those. Not most of the time you don't see those same deer in those same areas. Um, they'll come back through in November during the rut a, a lot sometimes. Uh, but to me, like the scouting now will mostly just be going to new areas, uh, you know, and just kind of learning the topography boots on the ground, finding out the thick areas, uh, finding out what looks like it has tree stands, what looks like, you know, people are accessing it this way, um, and finding out maybe different access routes, but I really don't focus a lot on it. I mean, you can look at historic sign like rubs and stuff like that, and that'll give you a really good idea of, of where the deer feel comfortable. However, that can also trick you because sometimes they can be made later and it's hard to tell time of the year all the time from, uh, the rubs. So a lot of the times you might be seeing them from late season and you're thinking, Oh, this would be great. And then you go in in October and you know, that's not where those deer were. You know what I'm saying? Just like a shed. Like, uh, I, you know, I had a deer where I found both of his sides to last year. And the only time he was on my camera was in January. And so if I'd, have, if I'd have went back and hunt, you know, if I had uh, set out the next year and hunted that deer based on just those sheds and not knowing that he was only in there in January, like that deer might only show up You're late season. And I could be, I could be sp spinning my whole wheels based off of a shed or based off of a, of a rub that w wasn't during a time that I thought. So in season scouting and running those cameras in the season is clutch for me. And, uh, so I don't, I don't focus a whole lot on preseason scouting other than finding new ground and figuring out the topography. Um, uh, and you know, maybe, maybe some historic sign, but, uh, I really want to see how I think myself just from, you know, prior knowledge, how the, mainly how the other people are using it and how I think the deer will use it. And, and so, my whole scouting early, like my my off-season scouting is not nearly as important to me as my in-season scouting and I will burn you know a lot of time in season going around and looking for fresh sign because I want to be on them right then when it's happening I've even burned uh whole vacation days like uh during the 2019 season I had five days off during the rut and uh I had hunted a couple days in a known spot that was pretty good, but I didn't see any action, didn't have anything on my cameras. So I knew it was going to be super windy on that Wednesday, the middle of my vacation. So I decided to burn a whole day, throw my bow over my back and set out 
to this other area and just start speed scouting where I was basically creeping around looking for does or looking for a lot of scrapes or rubs or whatever, really not even scrapes or rubs because it was uh, early November, but I really wanted to find a concentration of does, which I did. And then the next couple of days I got, you know, a couple shots at really nice bucks close range because I didn't get married to a spot and I did some in season speed scouting. So, uh, take that for what it will, but I, I don't place a whole lot of emphasis on preseason scouting. So, I, I mean, I know a lot of guys do and they do really well, but I don't. I want to know what's happening right when I'm hunting. Question for you. Yep. How much time do you spend, uh, say you go to a new spot on public ground, how much time are you spending at that spot uh, on average? I know kind of, uh, you know, Devin hit public real hard this past season. And I think uh, we've had this conversation before, but it was one of those deals where he liked to bounce around quite a bit. Uh, my thought kind of is, and I don't know how much time is the right amount of time, but I kind of feel as though, you know, you need to spend a certain amount of time uh, in a spot so you can kind of determine what is going on in that spot. So yeah, my question to you is just kind of how much time are you spending in a, in a new spot when you find it? Well, to me, that's uh, that's relative to if I have hunted it before. Uh, if I run cameras in the area or if it's a totally fresh new area. So let's say it was a total fresh new area and I'm going in there. Um, I have to first set my mind to how much time am I, how many days am I going to spend hunting this? Uh, you know, like, uh, am I going to dedicate my whole, uh, obviously it can change, but like, do I plan on going in here and figuring this place out? Uh, or am I just going to go in here for the day? go to this one spot that I saw on the map that looks really good and, and hunt it. And then, you know, see what happens. If, if I'm planning on like really diving in, you know, if I go in there and I see some good sign, I, you know, I might jump around until I just figure that one spot out. And, you know, that might be my whole season's, uh, you know, dedication is to that spot because you, you're not always going to get it that first try. You might be just off the action and uh that you know that next set you might go in there and and be on top of them and, and make it happen or you might go you know you you might just not be there in there at the right time and so it's it's kind of hard like like i said when on that uh when i was in that one spot historically it was really good but those couple of days it wasn't any good and i had to on the fly make a decision to go to somewhere else. Oh boy. But if I had been seeing deer in there and I felt like it was hot and I just wasn't on top of them, I would have kept moving around within that area until I made it happen. That makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Sweet, sweet. So you, you're, you're putting a lot of emphasis on, um, in season reading sign, jumping on it. Um, whereas you're not really getting super concerned about off season. It's kind of more just, your off season is more just going into property that you've probably never really been in and just kind of walking around and, and seeing what all it has to offer as far as topography and maybe old sign, but, um, you're, you're cutting your teeth on, I, I want to see, I wanna see if the neighbors have, have, yeah, I want to see if the neighbors have stands on the borders. I want to see, uh, where the, where the, uh, you know, the, the tree stands that have been left up are, and I want to see the trails used by the humans. Those are the big things to me in off-season scouting is I, I just want to know what's the part of this area that's not being used by other people because 
nine times out of 10, that's where the deer are going to be. Yeah. So before we, we go into Turkey, I do have one more question for you. Cause I've been thinking about this. There were a few spots on public that I, I tried to get into this season and it was a complete shit show because it was too thick or whatever. It, just access wasn't good. So I thought about during this off season is basically taking a machete and kind of making my own little trail to where next year I can get into these spots a little bit easier. Do you do any kind of manipulation like that? Or do you just kind of try to figure out the best route without touching anything? I generally don't, I don't manipulate most of the time unless, unless it's a super thick, like where you have to like get down on your hands and knees to get through something. Uh, but you know, then I might like break a branch or two like, but, but even then it's, it's very rare for me to go into the same spot over and over. So like, again, if you set that trail, that might that in your mind that might set you to going that way every time, and, and you see sure. what I'm saying? Like, well, I put in that at work. I don't ever want to get married to one spot. Uh, it, for, even from year to year, week to week, like if it's not if it's not jumping, I don't want to be there. I want to kill. Like I set my mind a long time ago. I don't want to just see big bucks. I want to kill them. I want to be able to jump on their backs and ride them. You know what I'm saying? Like oh, that's yeah. why I don't even carry binoculars. Uh, most of the time because I get into places where big bucks are going to walk during the daylight. And most of the time that's not in open areas. Uh, you know, most of the time I can't shoot past, you know, 30 yards, uh, comfortably. So it's, uh, it's one of those things where, uh, I, I don't, I don't do a lot of prep. I just don't, uh, I get in there and uh, the way I always feel like is, if it gets light and I don't feel like I'm in a good spot, I can move. Um, I just have to set my mindset to not, not be lazy and not be like, well, I'm up here. I'm set up. Uh, that's good enough. Like it's not good enough. If I'm not in what I think is the best potential spot for me to kill a, a, a big buck. And that's, that's, that's only, th that's the only thing that drives me is, is where is that big buck going to walk? I have to be right there and I have to be downwind of him. For sure. Well, like I said, um, this is something that we can continue once we get closer to deer season. You're obviously um, fucking ate up with it just from listening <laughs> to you talk, and it, which is awesome. I mean, you're talking about a lot, a lot of stuff I want to learn. Uh, a lot of goals that I have is, is getting to that point, but um, it's it's definitely not easy or else everybody would be doing it. So, um, that's where we transitioned into Turkey. I remember specifically whenever, um, we did meet, whenever we went to go track BJ's deer, um, you, you talked about Turkey and you said if they had antlers on their head, you would never deer hunt because you love Turkey hunting so much. So kind of talk about that. Talk about your love, where it comes from and why that's different. Cause not a lot of people have that outlook. Yeah. Um, and maybe I was exaggerating a little bit. I love deer hunting obviously, but, but, uh, the thing is, is after a long arduous, uh, deer season, uh, there's nothing better than, uh, like for me, cause I'm bow hunting and I'm trying to get this giant buck to be within 20 yards, you know, and, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're grinding it out on all day sits. And like a lot of deer hunting is not enjoyable. Like I love deer hunting but there, there are so many times during deer hunting where you are 
just writing out the pain, you know, like you're, you're, you're just fighting discomfort a lot of the times. And, uh, and there's a weird enjoyment to that, but it's not the same as just like being totally relaxed, euphoric, not giving a shit and just going out after a gobbler. And, you know, it's nice to, it's, it's nice to have a change of pace, uh, after that. And so, uh, uh, turkey hunting for me is like, it's, it's not as hard, but it's still, it's still an amazing amount of fun, which is why I love it. Uh, because it's more interactive with the animal and, and uh, you know, you can still have that aspect of hunting cause you're sneak, at least for me in, let's see, I started, I started, well, let me backtrack here. So, uh, I started turkey hunting around, uh, I was like 19 or 20 and, uh, nobody in my family turkey hunted, uh, nobody that I knew turkey hunted. So basically I bought a, uh, Primos, uh, how to turkey hunt DVD and, uh, went out and bought like a $20 call package from HS, uh, and, uh, you know, bought like a, a $40 vest and was, was in the game. So I, uh, I had a buddy, he had some property and, uh, I was working on a farm at the time and I'd taken three days off. Okay. For my first day ever turkey hunting, it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And, uh, I, uh, I head out to, uh, to go turkey hunting and I'll never forget. I set up, uh, at the first gobble that I heard, I was like hundreds of yard, yards away. I set up these foam decoys out, like right as I heard them and started calling to them. And of course, they flew down and went total opposite way. And, uh, and, uh, so I spent the whole day walking around and, and, uh, you know, trying to figure it out and was actually leaving the woods kind of downhearted and go to cross this Creek and two gobblers jump up like pheasants uh, from my feet. And one of them lands on the other side of the Creek and I pop him in the head. And, uh, so my first time out, I had a two year old down, Perfect. uh, but yeah, I was like, dude, this is easy. Uh, you know, I was like, I can't believe like people can't do this. And, uh, so I, uh, I, I cross, I remember running across the Creek, I'm covered with water and I, and I'm, I'm pretty happy. So, uh, the next year I told myself that, uh, I'm going to call one in this year. I said, uh, but what I'm going to do is when I hear that bird this year, I'm going to just figure out that he's there with an owl hoot. And when I figure out he's there, I'm going to get as close to that sucker as possible, sit down, call once or twice, really lightly and never call again. So I head out in the woods, I throw an owl call. I hear this out, I hear this gobbler and I do just that. I make my way up this hill and uh, it was fifth season. So there was a lot of foliage on the trees and uh, make my way up this hill to like, it was like 50 yards from this dude's tree. And, uh, right as it gets light, I, uh, I throw some soft, you know, some soft yelps and a little bit of a purr and he just starts going crazy. Uh, and I never made another noise. He's up there just hammering, hammering. And, uh, finally he flies down out to the field and he's out there hammering and, uh, I never made a noise and he makes his way into the woods and at 20 yards, I pop him. So I go over there to get him. And he died in a, in a uh, morel patch that I still find to this day of giant yellows. It was like a pound of morels and the dude fucking died in them. And, uh, that's awesome. So here I Why am. Why can't I ever win second, like that? 
Yeah, no. Like to this day, like last year, I took my wife and kids out during the pandemic, and we we went and found a bunch of mushrooms in the same spot where this dude died. So for however long that is, 15, 16 years, this giant yellow patch has been there, and I found it by shooting a, a fucking eight up two year old. Uh, you know, within the first 20 minutes of shooting light. It was all so, horned up. Uh, so we're, did you, uh, yeah, that, so, that tactic, did you, to to do the soft yelps and then just to shut up, I mean, did you pick that up from somewhere or is that just something you, you just thought of? Like, he's going to know I'm here. If I just be quiet long enough, he'll get curious. Or did you, did you learn that? Like, what, how, how do you, how did you soak that in? Well, uh, it's hard to say because it's been 15, 16 years. Um, but it it may You're really have been something. Yeah, I know. It, it's been fifteen or sixteen years, but my to what I remember uh, is somebody may have have told me to just make a couple calls and shut up, or I I saw maybe saw it on a DVD to not over call. But uh, it's I, I'm actually still to this day proud of myself for being a a young, uh, you know, novice turkey hunter and never calling to that bird after the initial calls. Cause I was right there on him and knew that he knew I was there, you know, cause he, you know how they'll, they'll gobble two or three times on top of themselves when they're really fired up. Oh yeah. Imagine sitting 50 yards from that underneath it and you've never called in a turkey before and, uh, you know, not calling back to him. That was, you know, yeah, that so that's was, me last year. I, it was the first year I turkey hunted and I got on a Tom two days in a row. Um, and every time that fucker gobbled, I was, I was calling right back at him and it didn't end up working out. I've, I've still not killed a turkey, but, um, where I probably should have shut the hell up and, and seen if he got curious enough, I just kept hammering at him and then he'd go quiet for a little while as he was moving. And then I'd just keep scratching, trying to figure out where he was because it's hard because you get that instant, or a lot of times you get that instant um, feedback where it's working and he's gobbling. And as a young hunter or a, a new turkey hunter, I'm eating that shit up because like you said, it's a lot different than deer hunting where you're sitting there quiet for literally months on end, trying mm -hmm. not to make any noise um, to where you're going after this completely different style of hunting where you're calling and you're being loud and you're able to walk around and all that stuff. So it's, it's a, a very addicting to hear that and to keep calling. So, um, by, by you know, the that's way, probably just a quick side note. I mean, not telling it. Quick side note: both yeah. both of the booners yeah, that I've ever called that I've ever had in shooting distance, I called in to me. Uh, if you ever want to keep that into your, you know, throw that into your back pocket. But uh, hmm. both of them were called in and did not just walk by me. So. One of them was blind called in and the other one I saw with the doe and I rattled in and grunted in. But, uh, yeah, for whatever it's worth, I, I called both of them in. I didn't have them walk right past me. Yeah. That's something else I can need to mess with. Cause I, I don't do any calling. I just kind of sit in the woods and hope to get lucky <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all and, the time. And, uh, <laughs> I will say that, uh, the blind calling while it got him in there, it had him more alert and ultimately had him hold up at the 20 yards and then turn around and go to walk away. So, I mean, there's good and bad to it. They're going to know that something's in there. And if they don't see it, they're old enough and smart enough to know, Hey, nothing's in there. I'm, I'm not going in there. 
Yeah, for sure. So as you know, exactly a week from today, um, Clint and I are going to Georgia to go chase some turkeys. So, um, seeing how the both of us don't know what the fuck we're doing and we're driving 12 hours ago to chase an animal that we don't know how to kill. Any, uh, <laughs> any kind of advice you can give to us? Just that, that actually said before you answer that, before you answer that, I'm going to add that, uh, his question real quick. I was just sitting here thinking when you were talking about how after you locate a, a bird or whatever, um, you know, you, you may, you may do some, some soft calling to it and then you shut up. Would it be beneficial or would it be, would it uh, be hard, I guess, harmful if like one guy had, let's say a mouth call, the other guy had like a box call and you kind of uh, mix those. One dude was doing one thing, one dude was doing the other thing and you kind of mixed them in a little bit and then shut up with that. Is that an issue? Well, well and, and, and here's the deal. Shutting up is not always the answer. Um, every bird is different and you're not going to run into any one size fits all. But so like, uh, uh, yes, to answer your question, yes, uh, that doing that will help changing up the calls, sounding like multiple birds. But uh, the biggest thing is being able to read your bird. And so like, another big uh, breakthrough moment for me was realizing that where you're calling from has a huge impact on whether or not your bird's going to be responsive and how he's going to act. Okay. So on the same property where I killed those two birds, uh, and it's hard to explain without showing you, but I would always take the same entry route to back to where they were roosting. Okay. And I had, I had, some good run-ins and I would, you know, I would call a bird in here and there, but after about 10 years of hunting this property one way, I finally got fed up and decided to take a different route totally around the other way of where, uh, they were, they roosted and my success rate has went through the roof of calling in birds and shooting them. Because if you're calling from where they want to be, it's so, so much easier. It's like shooting fish in a barrel compared to trying to call them to you. Uh, so if I could give anybody one tip, you don't even have to call if you're where they want to be. Like they, you know, just, just switching up your entrance route uh, from, from one day to the next may, might be your key to success. So, uh, okay. And then speaking of where they want to be, um, what have you found to be, I guess, most common, uh, when they're coming off the roost, as far as where they're looking to go to, I guess, like Devin said, I, we have no, uh, no real good knowledge of Turkey hunting since we're, we're rookies at it. Yeah. That could change probably where you're at, but just if you have any, if you've noticed any areas that they like, like they, they like flying into open fields or anything like that. That's what I'm saying. I'm just right. wondering if right. he's, if he's found that there's one spot that they like to go to more often than another. Sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, I've always found that they like to find like generally if you find big ridges away from people with creeks at the bottom, now we're talking about around here where I hunt. So like he said, it's going to change. I've never hunted Georgia or Alabama. I've only hunted Eastern Turkey. So, uh, my knowledge is kind of confined to that, but from what I found, uh, they're going to be up on high ridges and they're either going to pitch down, they're going to pitch down to an open area, but the turkeys that I, that I've hunted have always pitched down into the woods first and then made their way to the ag fields. Um, 
there may be some that are that are roosted right alongside of the ag fields that will pitch straight down into the ag fields but i've like when i started hunting the property i started hunting for a long time i only had access to the roost so my style of hunting i've actually never killed a bird over a decoy uh i i just i never have i carried them with me for many years trying to make it happen but i i found that they ultimately limited me because i would try and set up and i felt like it caused more movement than was necessary when i when i was trying to sneak close to the roost you know you want to limit your movement and uh setting up decoys doesn't do that and it adds noise but then also you have once again married yourself to a spot and you've taken away your mobility. Whereas if I go in there and I set up and I think that the bird's moving on me, I don't stay sitting over those decoys. I just move. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but as far as where they, where they fly down in the woods, it, that's going to be relative to each area. I found that they like a nice open area where they can pitch down to, um, and you know, they feel safe so they can see that there's no coyotes or, you know, humans around. Sure. All right. So, um, my laptop's yelling at me that there's low disk space, so I don't want to miss out on a bunch of good shit and then not record. So, um, we'll kind of start wrapping this up. I do want to shout out, um, what you're doing on YouTube. So if you want to talk about that real quick. Yeah, um, so uh, I do Good Sit Productions. Uh, what is the name of the YouTube That's channel? not good shit, right? Because your cousin BJ talked about something about you in the woods always happening to shit or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told him I'd bring it up. I've got a mobile, uh, uh, I've got a mobile shitting uh, system. Uh, that <laughs> that but, is uh, fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually... <laughs> Uh, I've got to I've got to share this one story uh, since we're wrapping it up. Go for and, it, and it's it's related. But in the uh, if you watch my public land redemption video, um, so because guys always get you know talking about scent control this and that, right? I, I'll piss off my deer stand, but uh, uh, at the time I was uh, I was bringing my mobile shitting uh, uh, system. And what I would do is I would bring a, a Ziploc, two giant Ziploc bags, okay? And I would bring wet wipes and rubber gloves, okay? And they always laugh at me because I would shit into a bag, okay? And uh, that's, that's impressive. Yeah, on an all-day sit, <laughs> I would shit in a, because if, if I'm in a bedding area, I'm not getting down and I don't want to make a bunch of noise, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, how can I sure. shit without shitting on the ground? And uh, so anyway uh, I, I had shit in this bag and it had always worked. You know, I would double bag it and throw the, you know, throw the shit in there. But on the day where I kill my biggest buck and on that video, uh, that, that morning I had taken a shit and the bag had flipped down and smacked off of the tree and threw shit all over, uh, the tree, all over the ground, the gloves were on the ground. Um, and there's a big bag of shit laying at the bottom of my tree. And, uh, very, very briefly, I didn't mean to, but when I get down from my tree, you can very briefly catch the, the bag. And, uh, it's just funny that, uh, people get so caught up on scent control and stuff. And here I am, I kill 150 inch deer on public with a bag of shit and gloves at the base of my tree. So I had to, I had to. 
So I need to fantastic. start shitting next to my tree is what needs to happen. I, I can't tell you how many times I took a shit in the woods this year <laughs> and walked about 20 yards and uh, let her eat, boys. So <laughs> I bring a whole different term to the to the good shit productions, too. I always thought it was funny, but um, <laughs> that is fantastic. So how many episodes do you have? I mean, I know, but just for the people. Uh, roughly 15. There's uh, there's four big buck kills on there right now. Uh, three of them with a bow and uh, one of them with the, with the gun uh, on public. And the one with the gun was actually a deer that I chased for uh, a couple years, had his shed, had uh, multiple years trail cam picks of him, and uh, ended up uh, meeting up with him three days after I missed that 180 at 20 yards. Uh, and it was the same. It was within a two week span where I'd killed that 150 with the shit at the base of the tree too. So it was a pretty That's crazy, awesome. or pretty crazy couple of weeks of hunting. So yeah, well, it's it's cool that uh, it just shows um, your passion even more. Um, all the self film and stuff you you can it, your passion just radiates through. Obviously, just talking to you, but also those videos. Um, I really enjoyed them. I I hope you make quite a bit more. Um, be cool to see you make some turkey ones. Um, so it's just cool. I mean, there's so many different shows and stuff like that, but uh, it's kind of cool to say that you actually know somebody that's that's uh, behind the camera and to see to be able to to see the hunt that you're talking about. It's just it's and it's an aspect that we're we're trying to get into. Uh, we're gonna try to film as much as we can in Georgia. Try to get, just learn it. Um, maybe it'd be a little bit easier learning how to film with with turkeys instead of deer and. Uh, well, yeah, and, and so, uh, one of my, that, so actually my, favorite, my favorite video out of all four of those kills that I got on there is, uh, one that this year where I killed over the scrape and he's the smallest one, but, uh, uh, that was my first time ever actually utilizing trail camera footage or, you know, like immediate trail cam knowledge over a scrape and going in and killing, you know, killing on it. Uh, so like I, I was super happy and proud with that because, uh, I had just never, I had never utilized them in that way. I'd always just used them for, uh, you know, knowing that deer were in the area or how they used it, historic data, stuff like that, but never immediately went in there, used a trail camera to kill a deer. So I, I really, uh, I was, I was really happy with how that one turned out. Yeah, it was, a, that was a good one. I've been yelling at these guys to watch it. I don't know if they have it or not, but, uh, I'm sure they will. So Plus my, awesome. My I appreciate you coming on. My daughter makes a debut in that one too. Do so what? I said my daughter. Yeah, I did, yeah. you guys were scouting together. Yeah. So um, if I can leave you guys with anything, if I can leave you guys with anything, it's just uh, or you know the listeners. Um, there's absolutely no magic bullet. You have to put in the work. You have to be meticulous. You have to pay attention to your surroundings, and uh, you cannot let uh, your failures define you. Uh, because if you sit there and, and sulk and dwell and, uh, have anything but a positive, uh, go-getter attitude, you will fail in the public woods, no doubt about it. Um, so what I tell myself like 50 times a season is I have that talk with myself to stop being a bitch. Uh, this is, you know, this isn't helping you. And, uh, all the only thing that matters is pushing forward and, uh, making it happen. So. Fuck yeah. It's a good uh, outlook to have on life, Tyler Poland. <laughs> I agree with 110%. He, he got all pissy this year. because I'm still pissy about it, but I'm going to redeem my damn self. 
Well, Brian, yeah, I appreciate man. you coming on. I can't wait for future conversations. Like I said, um, especially whenever we get closer to deer season and start talking about what you're doing in the moment um, and then more in depth of tactics. This is the kind of stuff that we love because we're learning. I, I mean, for me, for sure, I'm, I'm trying to learn as much as I can. I'm still relatively new to it. So I'm trying to pick up on those that have success and and you've had that and it showed the last several years and you actually have it on camera even. So um, again, I appreciate you coming on. appreciate you making the time to, to join us. Um, hopefully this episode isn't too fucked up. I know there's a couple of times where you cut out a little bit, but that's just, it's kind of just expected with today's technology, everything uh, or nothing fucking works the way it should. <laughs> so <clears throat> we we're experiencing the hell out of that, but um, so yeah, appreciate you. Can't wait to have you on in the future. Um, Poland, El, El, what is El Lindo? <laughs> you guys got anything to wrap no, up with? Appreciate you coming, coming on, on, man. Yeah, Ryan, anything you, else? Thank you guys for your service, man. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, can't say enough about our law enforcement. So you guys are out there doing it every day, man. So thank you. Our pleasure. Yeah, appreciate we, it. we appreciate the support. Um, so go after you listen to this mother trucker, go list or uh, go to YouTube, look up Good Sit without the h good sit productions <laughs> you'll find brian on there um killing killing some animals it's good stuff and then go find us on the facebooks and the instagrams give us a follow um rate the podcasts if you can uh, we appreciate it appreciate all the support and uh yeah till next time you guys got anything nope all right have a good one, man. learners out later fellas